Amen. Thank you, Master Aaron, Heidi, Melissa. Luke chapter 7. You join me there, Luke chapter 7. If you need a Bible, we have what's called a pew Bible that's uh, there in front of you. It'll be a page 610 in that Bible. And uh, that special goes well with our study this morning. The title of the message is simply this, For She Loved Much, For She Loved Much. We'll explain and get into it here, but find Luke chapter 7, if you will, look up this way, and we'll delve into it. I appreciate you being here this morning. I hope that uh, throughout the first part of our worship service, you were able to clear your mind, get rid of distractions of this earth and this world and our lives, the situation and circumstances we find ourselves in, to prepare our heart for God to speak to us, and I, I trust we're ready. Our cups are ready to be filled by the Lord this morning. Luke chapter 7 records for us a a most amazing story. You see, a particular day as Jesus Christ was uh, fulfilling what he was called to do in this earthly ministry, he is speaking and teaching to the people. During that time, he had already interacted with some of the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had sent some disciples, uh, his own disciples, to to Jesus to find out, are you the one we're looking for? Are are you the one that is the fulfillment of everything that I have been preaching, the prophets say? And Christ had already interacted with them, sent them back and said, yes, I am. Tell him I I am the one in in so many words. And, And he expresses that. He had already performed several miracles, too, uh, amazing miracles that prophesied, or excuse me, witnessed, testified to uh, who he was, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who was sent from God above. Well, he's teaching and he's preaching, and among the crowd or within that crowd of eager, eager listeners are, are some familiar to him who we might call opponents. They were scoffing Pharisees, they were the lawyers and maybe even Sadducees who wanted to do nothing else but find error with what Christ said. Listening to every word and trying to find some problem with it. They wanted to find fault with Jesus Christ. They, they wanted to uh, make sure that uh, they were a constant, listen to me, a constant thorn in the flesh of Jesus Christ. So when other people gathered together, they wanted to be there. They wanted to make sure that they were always there kind of oppressing him, always there trying to find an issue and, and so forth. And everywhere he went, he, he probably could scope the audience and he'd find, oh, there they are. Oh, yeah, there's another Pharisee. There's a Sadducee. There's a lawyer. There's a religious leader. There's somebody the high priest sent just to uh, maybe ask a question to try to bother me. And I want you to think about that for a moment because I think it speaks volumes to our lives today. We will often emphasize, and rightfully so, that uh, as 100% human and 100% God at the same time, he experienced and endured all that we do as humans. And we rightfully emphasize that. Yeah, he was. He, he went through what you and I go through on a daily basis. So let me ask you this. Do you have someone right now in your life uh, that a person that is always seemingly contrary to you? A person that is a constant thorn in your flesh, that, that just loves to uh, give you a hard time, that, that seemingly every step of the way opposes you. Whether they're in, the, in your life right now or you've had one in the past, the reality is we've probably all faced that. Maybe a family member, maybe a fellow employee, maybe a loosely called friend. Whatever relation is, they love to tear you apart. They enjoy finding fault with you. They're never pleased. You can't ever do right in their eyes. And they are a constant source of trouble and consternation for you. 
I think in my dealings with people that most of us, if not all of us, have dealt with someone like that, have someone in our lives, even now or in the past, we have endured such people. And may I submit to you this afternoon or this morning, excuse me, it seems that everywhere that Jesus Christ went, he seldom had relief from the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and the priests who thought it was their God-given responsibility to undermine and discredit Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you this. If they did that every chance they got, don't you think that got old for Jesus Christ? Every time he stood up to talk, and every time he he started preaching to people, all of a sudden he saw that face, that familiar Sadducee and Pharisee, and he, he knew maybe by their garb, their dress, oh yeah, I know who these guys are. Certainly there may have been one or two that were there, like Nicodemus, who wanted to really hear and understand, but the majority of them had the intent of being a constant thorn in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Now, how long was his ministry? Three years. If we say just for two of those years, he was publicly preaching and teaching. The reality is, that's a whole long time to put up with someone who's a constant thorn in your flesh. That's what Christ faced. See, um, did, he, did it ever get old? Well, let me remind you, he was 100% human. Do you ever get tired of it? you ever get worn down by someone who constantly opposes you, contrary to you? And you ever get worn down? And yet, here's the reality. Certainly, That was a thorn in the flesh to Christ, and yet in response, he never did wrong. He never sinned in retaliating against them, lashing out at them in anger and and with words. He never lowered himself to their level. And I I, I think, you say, that's not really what the story is about here. I get it, but I'll tell you, I sure am thankful that Jesus Christ is an example for you and I. And the things he faces in life, and here's the reality, and this ought to be an encouragement and challenge to each of us today as we think about this story, we think about what Jesus Christ endured. Here's the reality. Christ faced them, he endured them, and he sinned not. I don't know who's in your life right now. I don't know who the thorn in the flesh is, and sometimes we jokingly call them our God-appointed thorn in the flesh, like Paul had. Someone who's just contrary to you and opposes you and humbles you and so forth. And sometimes God uses that person to do things in our life. May I encourage you today, you can face them, you can endure them, and you can sin not. You can handle that situation. The faux pas earlier of reading Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me, is very appropriate here. You can. You can face that. Um, Jesus Christ did. Man, I sure am thankful that you and I can look to Christ in so many things. That, that he faced things that I faced. That he had to endure things that you endure. That, that there are examples that he gives us. Uh, next time you and I face that person or whoever, whatever it may be, may we remember Jesus Christ. As our flesh is kind of getting worked up, let's remember, Christ had to handle this, and he did so without sinning. So, Lord, help me to handle it without sinning. Help me to keep a right spirit and attitude. It's interesting, after Jesus Christ stopped teaching and, and uh, preaching, one of those very Pharisees came up to him. And in doing so, uh, this man, his name was Simon. He was Simon the Pharisee, not to be uh, confused with Simon the disciple, Simon Peter. He came up to him and he said, uh, to, to Christ, Christ, I want you to come over and eat dinner with us. I, I want you to come and break bread with us. And that's quite amazing. It was really extraordinary uh, thought that he would go with the Pharisee because this was not what we would call a Zacchaeus moment. This was not him coming up and saying, hey, I want to learn more about you. I want to understand who you are. And I believe in you. I, I believe that you're sent from God. That, that's not what 
what this was. Likely, he was just wanting to get Christ into his house to, to question him more, to expose some things, to, to find some things, to hear some things from Christ by which he could uh, persecute him, prosecute him in the eyes of the public. And no doubt he wanted to find what we would call the chink in the armor, somewhere in something that they could use to attack Jesus Christ in the future. And certainly Christ would have known that, but here's the interesting thing. Jesus Christ chooses to go. He says, I'll go, okay, I'm, I'll come over and eat with you. And that, that had to be amazing. And I'm certainly, the other first were like, whoa, and uh, Christ's followers, and I was like, what, you're accepting this invitation? You're going to this, this Pharisee's house? And he did, he accepted it. Christ enters the house, and they there, and the food was set before them, and they sat down to eat. And we understand in the Middle East, even today, and certainly in those days for sure, and even parts of Africa, uh, the food would be set on an elevated thing or a short table, and people would sit around it on pillows or, or basically a reclined position, often with your feet sticking to the side or out behind you. And uh, some of us on missions trips have experienced that, where we've sat on the ground and had to eat and things like that. And, and that's typical. It's, it's reclining position and so Christ would have done that so and as this was taking place and they were about to partake of the the meal no doubt there was questions being asked maybe of Christ there was Pharisees talking among themselves guests of, of that Pharisee Simon who were there for dinner were talking and conversing well as the conversation was going on all of a sudden there in the the room appeared a lady a woman and it was obvious at the very beginning that this woman was not a, an occupant of this house. She wasn't even a servant. By the way she was dressed, it, it certainly would have been clear and obvious uh, she really didn't belong there. This was not someone that this Pharisee would have invited. Um, everything would have given that away. And in fact, the story tells us a little bit more. Not only was she not uh, really supposed to be there, she, she didn't fit. But people of that city, the Pharisee and other guests at that dinner, knew her. In fact, the Bible makes it pretty clear. They knew that she was a sinner, a well-known sinner of the city. And we, we don't really know what that sin was. Many uh, speculate that it, she was possibly a harlot and, and so forth, uh, forth, a woman on the streets. We really don't know. We don't know what that sin was. But the reality was it had to be some kind of public sin or a public knowledge of this sin. Uh, maybe the consequences or the action of her sin were obvious to all. So we don't know, but here's what we know. And I, this is crucial for us to understand from the story. We'll uh, see. She was known to the people as a sinner. So she shows up. She walks into this room and, oh, what's she doing here? What, what is she doing here? What, she doesn't belong here. She, 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 th this is not her place. May I submit to you today, aren't, aren't you thankful like I am that when you and I first came to Jesus Christ, he didn't say, what are you doing here? He didn't look at us and knew, as Christ does, he knows we are a sinner, yet he doesn't turn us away, he welcomes us. I'm sure I'm thankful for that. And, and that didn't happen just in salvation, friend. You know what happened? What happens? Every day, you and I as believers, as children of God, we can sin, It happens. And yet in prayer, he still accepts us. We can come and forsake and confess that sin as we ought to do so. There she was. She slips in and every eye probably was turned immediately, catching a glimpse of her movement. And I, I can just imagine as more people noticed that, that conversation stopped or paused or, or they started going from an out, an out loud uh, conversation to whispering. They were whispering to each other about her. and What is she doing? Why did she come? 
So there's whispering, and you can imagine just a silence fell over the place as we just experienced here. They're wondering, what in the world is she doing here? Who let her in? Maybe Simon the Pharisee is like, man, I'm going to, that servant that's supposed to be watching the door, this is his last day. Why did he let her in? How, how did she get in this place? Step back a moment, and I want to ask this question. What do you think was going on in her mind and heart? Where did she get such boldness? Where did she come up with, as we would put it in common American vernacular, where did she get the guts to do that? What possessed her? What was going on in her mind or thinking or heart? And she entered this place where all these religious people were gathered and certainly she was not welcome. Well, she methodically moves in that building or that room. She notices where Christ is and she slowly moves behind Jesus Christ. And she stops there. And as she does, the, the Bible says that, that certainly they there would have noticed that tears were coming down her face. She was crying. She stops there behind Christ and she begins to kneel. In fact, it's possible, it's very, very possible that she reaches Christ, she's behind him, she, she kneels and maybe even prostrates herself behind Christ. And as she does, she takes out a, a, a small, beautiful box, an alabaster box, the Bible says. It's full of ointment, the kind of anointing, anointment that you would use to anoint someone. No doubt there's some people like, oh, an audible gasp, what? Why did she have that? How did she get that? Why, why did she bring that here, the place where she is certainly not wanted? And as she kneels behind Christ, the, the tears are pouring down her face. And, and, and forgive me, I, I am reading in between the lines here, but could you imagine if the tears are coming down, maybe like some folks, she's starting to sob and the noise is unignorable. Uh, you, you, you can't just put out, and she's crying. She, and then she kneels down and as she kneels down or already prostrate, those tears are flooding off her face and, and they, she allows them to drop on the very feet of Jesus Christ and they're flowing down and, and she's gushing as we might say today and the, the tears are all over his feet and, and then she grabs her hair. We can imagine maybe she had long hair. And she uses her hair to wash the feet of Jesus Christ with the tears that have flown from her face onto his feet. Now let's put ourselves in, the, in Simon's position. What in the world is going on? Simon the Pharisee, you and I can imagine that as this is transpiring and taking place, he's probably, as we like to say, he's probably dying inside, isn't he? This house party, he's, all he can see is this house party is going to end up as the lead story in the gossip section of the local newspaper. The next service at the synagogue, oh boy, this is all that people are going to be talking about. In his mind, his reputation is ruined. This sinner has entered in. And look now what she's doing. And as he's watching with great amazement and disdain, and boy, he's, he's maybe turning red in the face, and he's angry, and it gets worse. See, as she's crying, the tears are flowing onto Jesus' feet. She uses her hair to wipe his feet, and then she starts to kiss the very feet of Jesus Christ. She gets some of that ointment she puts on the, the feet of Christ. And I, I, I'm telling you, I, we don't know. We weren't there, but I would just imagine everything stopped. 
That kind of event doesn't happen without garnering everybody's position. What do we call them around here? Rubberneckers? In an accident, everybody slows down to look what's happening. I can guarantee you, every servant, every person at that dinner, they were interested. What in the world? is it? What's Christ going to do? It was too much for Simon. He couldn't take it. This was not the way that he had envisioned having Christ over. He thought that maybe he could embarrass Christ, that he would be sent out because of the questions. He would be stumbled in, uh, in answering the questions. He'd trip him up. And this was not in any way how he had pictured and envisioned it happen. And so, and to himself, he, not audibly, but to himself, he thinks this. This man, if, if he were a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. She is a sinner. You can imagine this just going on in his head. Great disdain for this lady. In that statement, uh, there are certainly several mistakes that Simon the Pharisee makes. First of all, notice this. He was not a man of saving faith. That's obvious from this passage and his interaction with God and with Jesus Christ. But he was a man of self-glorifying religious pursuits and wrong thinking. If he understood the mission behind the Messiah, he would have understood the Messiah was going to come to seek and to save those which are lost sinners. If he understood who Jesus Christ was, he would have understood that Jesus Christ had already had meals with publicans, sinners. That he's reaching those who need a physician spiritually. But I want you to notice this. Indicative and revealing of his heart and thinking is this. He says, Christ, if this man were a prophet, if he were a prophet, not if he were the Messiah, if he were the Son of Man. If he were God, he wouldn't let this happen. No, no, he doesn't even put Christ on that level. In fact, he won't even put him on the level of a prophet. He probably thinks that Jesus Christ is a heretic, as many Orthodox Jews even today might think. Uh, his esteem of Christ is all wrong. His understanding, his thinking is all wrong. And furthermore, he equated staying clear of this woman as a religious duty, a sign of spirituality. Boy, I sure am thankful today that Jesus Christ doesn't mind you and I touching him. Though we are sinners, he does not care that a sinner comes and touches him. Christ would gladly embrace the greatest of sinners. They turn to him in faith. And here was this lady. Second mistake, and I find this somewhat humorous. Did you catch what he did here? <laughs> Supposedly a religious, knowledgeable man. No doubt he, he knew the Old Testament in some ways, and yet he showed his ignorance of it in other ways. You know, second, what we see his mistake, he believed his thoughts were his alone and not known by God. Whether he believed Jesus Christ was God or not, the fact is this, if he truly believed that God in heaven knew his thoughts, he wouldn't think that. Who wouldn't think that? And yet he acts in such a way that, what does he do? He scoffs at Christ. <laughs> this guy doesn't even know what kind of man, woman she is, that she's a sinner. He doesn't know. And you know what's funny? He doesn't know or doesn't acknowledge Jesus Christ knows his thoughts. God knows his thoughts. See, you talk about ignorance spiritually and religiously. He's ignorant. And we know fully and understand that our thoughts are always before God. And even Jesus sitting in his presence knew his thoughts. Psalm chapter 94, verse 11, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. 
Psalm 139 and verse 2 and 139 is a great uh, chapter about God knowing us in many different ways. Verse 2, thou knowest my down city, my uprising, thou understandest my thought afar off. It's a good reminder today, friend. God knows your thoughts. Be careful what you think in the pew at Fostoria Baptist Church. Be careful what you think at work and on the ride home today. Be careful of your thoughts because God knows them. He knows your thoughts. Maybe down the hallway in one of our children's classes, there's the the favorite song. Maybe they're singing it. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. We could add to that. Oh, be careful, little mind, what you think. For your Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little mind, what you think. He didn't get it. He didn't grasp it. He didn't live by it. And I would challenge you and I that we can learn much from that today. God knows our thoughts. There's a third mistake. He didn't believe Christ, or he believed that Christ didn't know the woman, when the reality was this. He didn't really know the woman, while Christ intimately knew her heart. Man, this is a great statement, isn't it? Because why? He passes, he passes judgment. He makes conclusions, not just on the woman, about the woman, but on Jesus Christ too. His thoughts are dripping with judgmental, pharisaical attitude and ignorance. And my friend, you and I ought to be challenged by that too this morning. It's a stark reminder that you and I do not know the hearts of people perfectly. In fact, truth be told, as humans, we often misjudge the hearts of others, their intent, their motives, their desires, their reasoning. Let us be warned this morning. Before we profess to know and act upon what we think is someone else's heart, what we think that we think we know all about, then make sure you aren't following in the footsteps of this Pharisee and many others like him. See, it's so much better to give others the benefit of the doubt, act in love as Christ called us to, to adhere to the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 that says, love thinketh no evil. To give people the benefit of the doubt. Because you know what happens to this story? Christ soon exposes the truth here for all to see. So the man is making, this Pharisee Simon is making several mistakes, and mistakes we ought to learn from, we can take to heart. So he's thinking this about the woman. He's saying, man, what, if God knew what manner of woman this was, if he knew that she was a man, if he were a prophet, he'd know this, and not fully understanding God. And boy, he's thinking that, and all of a sudden Christ speaks. Christ speaks up, and it probably brings him back to what's happening right there in the moment. And, and Christ tells the man, he goes, I, I have something to say to you, Simon. I, I want to share something with you. And Simon says, yeah, speak, Lord. Go ahead. Uh, speak. Tell me, what you, tell me what it is. And not knowing that Christ was about to rake him across the coals for the very thoughts that he had in that moment. So Christ gives a little story. He gives a little anecdote. He says, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed him 500 pence, the other 50. When they had nothing to pay, he, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? That's certainly the, the man got a puzzled look on his face. Not because of the, the question. Because the question's an easy question. The answer is an obvious answer. Not because of that. He's probably wondering, as a Pharisee would do, where is Christ going with this? What point is he trying to make? What is he trying to uh, lead me into? And they'd heard Christ speak long enough. They understood his reasoning, his capabilities, his, his ways of teaching and getting to the heart of the truth or the, uh, the heart of the truth, the heart of the matter. And 
So he's probably wondering, and at the same time, he's very thankful, well, this is an easy question. Because <laughs> there's some questions that Christ asked the Pharisees they couldn't answer. They just kept quiet. So he's probably thankful, okay, this, this is a question I can answer, and the, 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 uh, the answer is relatively easy, because we can come to the conclusion, it's an obvious answer. The Pharisee says to Christ, I, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. Christ responds, thou hast rightly judged. Now, forgive me again in my juvenile nature, I just imagine that Christ paused here. The Pharisee is like, yeah, I got that answer. I'm ready for Jeopardy. I got it. And, and I can just imagine, he's like, yeah. And he's looking around the table, and all the other Pharisees, and people gathered there just kind of nodding their head, and, and nodding their head in approval, like, you did well, good job. And, and they're all like, yeah. And, and, and boy, his, his, his pride is probably building up a little bit. And I think Christ allowed that, just to maybe think he's, uh, think, allow him to think he's something. He's bigger than he is. And yet Christ is about to get out the dagger of God's word and drive it deep into the wicked, dark heart of this man. You see, in that moment, as he says, thou is rightly judged, and they're all enjoying his answer. Jesus Christ turns his attention back to the, the woman behind him. And all through this, you know what she's doing? She's crying, cleaning his feet. Kissing his feet. She's putting the ointment on. And Christ looks at her. And he begins to speak to Simon in verse 44. He says, Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, as was the custom in that day. So there's a sign of great disrespect. It, it, certainly no kindness shown Jesus Christ. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. Now, now we say, well, kissing, wow. We understand that even in the Middle East today, in some European countries, you greet someone by, by feigning a kiss on the cheek. Okay? Uh, that's always scary. That, or, or European, or you have an aunt that likes to grab them. Okay? That's the American version of it, right? Uh, but they, they, they greet each other and, and feign or act like they're kissing each other. And some do. They actually kiss. And so this was just a custom of the day. So he's not asking for anything great. He's just asking for a sign of respect due typically to fellow humans. He says, listen, you didn't even show me that. He said, my head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Man, you talk about an outright rebuke of this Pharisee. This man wanted to have nothing to do with this lady, but Jesus Christ said, okay, I'm going to place you side by side in comparison. Here are you, a Pharisee, a supposed religious person. You say you love God. You, you, you say you're following after God. And we're going to take this lady who is a known sinner in the city. We're going to push you side by side. But here's the reality. This known sinner has come to know the Savior. This known sinner has come to know the Savior. And let's see how they respond to the God of heaven. How they interact in this situation. He says, you as a Pharisee, Simon, have been found wanting. 
See, many in that day would have said, oh yeah, the Pharisees, they love God. They, they serve God. They hold God in great esteem and the highest esteem. The fact is this, he failed to show God love in Jesus Christ. Yea, he failed to show even common courtesy to Jesus Christ the human. May I submit to you this morning, and I think this is a true statement of this passage, this man was not a man of love. God knew this man. This man, he was a man with a dark heart. He had a love for himself. He, he had no relationship with God in heaven. Christ declares the shame upon this man. And you see what Christ says in verse 47? We'll read it together. Christ speaking, Wherefore I say unto thee, Simon, we could interject, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. See, I submit to you not only this morning that Christ proved two things. Not only that he knew this woman, that's the first, but he knew her heart her inner self. You know how he describes her? Christ knew her as a woman that loved God much. She walks into this room. Everybody else saying, besides Christ, hey, everybody in that room, man, that's a sinner. That's a sinner. She's a terrible sinner. Sinner of the city. She is a sinner. And yet, what does God know about this? This lady, this woman, she loved God much. Aren't you thankful that God knows your heart? Well, we ought to be. If there's sin there, if there's a, a heart like this Pharisee, it ought to scare us. But if there's truly within us a heart of love for God, it's a good thing that God knows our heart. No matter what others may think or say, God knows it. What a contrast to what the people thought they knew about her. So don't misunderstand the words here too. 47 is, I don't want to say it's confusing, but you can read it and think, oh, okay, so she's forgiven because of her love. No, that's, that's actually getting, reversing things. You see, the fact is this, it's not that she was forgiven because of her love, but the end of the verse makes the correlation and connection clear. What was that? Well, she had found the one and only source of true forgiveness in all the world. She had turned to Judaism probably. She had turned to the Pharisees and the high priests and they just condemned her because of her sin like the woman taken in adultery and that they brought Christ in and say, what should we do with her? She had probably turned to that and they just condemned her. And yet she had found in Jesus Christ the one and only source of true forgiveness. Here before her, she grasped that the one seated before her was the judge of heaven. That he was the judge of all creation as creator, including herself. And because of that, she grasped this truth that the Pharisee had no clue. He alone could offer the forgiveness that washes one's sins away, though they be many. She understood it. She understood that he alone, not some priest or earthly minister, could utter the words found in verse 48, and they have great power and they have great meaning. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. May I tell you, there's, been, there's never been greater words that have heard, been heard. There's never been a truth that has been conveyed and understood. Verse 50 tells us her future was saved. She was saved. It was full of peace. 
His future was scary and full of torment if he did not change his heart. Her love for God was great, and the Pharisee's love for God was non-existent. Her sin was great, and in his own eyes, the Pharisee had few, if any, sins. Her faith was in Christ. His faith was in himself, in his works. And what did Christ say? And do you see what's absent in verse 47? Verse 48. You see, her sins were forgiven. Simon the Pharisee's sins were still big and bold on his account. Look at verse 50. He said to the woman, Christ, thy faith hath saved thee. Mm. Go in peace. Isn't it good, no matter your past, no matter the sins that you have committed before you came to Christ, when you came in saving faith, God in heaven declared you saved and gave you peace that passes all understanding. From that day forward, that was the proclamation on this lady. Say, Pastor Henry, so we consider that, that her faith was the producer of great love, a faith unto forgiveness. You say, Pastor Henry, where, where did that great love, when Christ says she, had, she loved much, and certainly speaking of God, where in the world did that come from? What gave her that boldness to enter this room and, and do this amazing act of love and display of love for God and for Jesus Christ? What possessed her? Did this come, this love, come from her knowledge of the depth and degree of her own sins? Did it come from her understanding that God loved her so much that he sent Jesus Christ there just for her? Or did it come from the knowledge that through faith in Jesus Christ, her sins could be wiped clean, her slate made clean of all the garbage of her past? Did it come from her embracing that, that he was the uh, Messiah and that he would change her life and give her peace and, and her eternity would be changed forever? My answer to that is yes, 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 and yes. Because all those things are true. It is overwhelming what God has done for us. It was overwhelming to this center of the city of what Jesus Christ and God in heaven had done for her. You see, it was understanding these truths, how much she had been forgiven of, it moved her to this amazing, great act and display of reciprocated love for God. See, 1 John 3.18 says this, Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. She understood the truth of, I've been forgiven so much. And boy, that love came out in deed and in action. You see, she understood this truth, and I think sometimes we lose sight of it because it's not true of us, but it's true of God. She understood that this love was overwhelming, the love that came from God. How can the love of God be overwhelming? Well, it's certainly rooted in all that he does, but love is not just a part of God's character. It is the very essence of his nature. It is who God is. God is love, the Bible says. See, you and I, we're not naturally love. 
We don't have that. We, we had to choose to love. We have to say, okay, it, it can become a characteristic of us because we have learned to love from loving God. And that, that is certainly true, and that's borne out in Scripture. But the fact is this. We can never obtain to the expression and degree of love that God has because God is love. And boy, did she understand that. And she understood what she had when she put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it was this love, a God of love, who poured out his love upon us and upon this woman. And it is overwhelming. And may I submit to you this morning that our actions daily ought to scream that we love God much. That we recognize and acknowledge that he has done so much for us. That there isn't anything that we wouldn't do for him. So it begs the question this morning, in application, are there some of us here today that claim to love God, but like the Pharisee, uh, it is an empty, self-serving love that's found in our hearts, a human love that loves only because we get it back or or only if everything goes well or, or if I'm treated right? Is it a human love like this Pharisee? Is, a love, is it a love that we have redefined as meaning something altogether different from the biblical definition of love? The biblical love that ought to be evident in our daily actions. Maybe, just maybe, there's some of us here, if we're honest before God, we, we really don't love God. Oh, we might be committed to God. We might follow God. We may strive to be a disciple of God, but we have never chosen to love God in action and indeed, we're a follower. We might even be saved. But our love does not reach the level of this. What well, we have witnessed in this woman's amazing love in action. I implore you to ask the simple question of yourself this morning. Have I loved Christ this week in such a way that would parallel the powerful display of Luke 7 that we have witnessed? See, in the book of Revelation. God is speaking to a church there. And in his addressing of the church, he comes to a diagnosis of what is wrong in that church, what is happening in those family of God, the the people of God. Here's his diagnosis, and it's rather grave. He says this, church, you have left your first love. That love is no longer there. It it, it was once there. You've left it. You've gone away from it. Is God saying the same thing to you this morning? Because here's a reality. When you love God, the Christian life is easier. When you love God, the most seemingly deplorable and difficult tasks are willingly and and gladly done in service to your Savior. When you love God, it matters not what those around you think of you. It, It only matters what Jesus knows you to be. And here's amazing. Look at verse 49. Yeah, this is quite a thought. This, uh, in the midst of this story and this vivid illustration, this situation of teaching and so forth, the, the saddest reality of the story is the response of these Pharisees and those eating with him. You know what they should have been? They should have been floored. They, they, they should have been uh, just set back. They should have been humbled. They should have been shamed by their own thoughts and the things that transpired. But in a grand revelation of their lack of knowledge of God, their lack of spiritual insight, their lack of love for God, you know what they question? Look at verse 49. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, here's their thinking, who is this that forgiveth sins also? 
Still don't get it. Uh, they should have been greatly convicted. They should have been challenged, even in their thinking. And yet their thoughts betray their hearts. Their hearts that were empty of love for God. See, Christ said of her what? For she loved much. They thought they knew her as a sinner of the city. But Jesus Christ knew her as one that loved God much. So here's the question this morning. I think it is appropriate as we go into the invitation that every one of us answers it. Let's picture ourselves sitting at that table, sitting on the floor before the food. If Christ were to describe us as he did in a roundabout way, the Pharisee, but directly of the lady that was sitting behind him, what would he say of us? Would he say of you and I that, boy, he, she, they... they they love me much. Their heart is full of love. They never quickly or soon forget what I have done for them. They have learned that true love is displayed in truth and in deed. Or would he look at you and I like he does the Pharisee and say, you know what, this past week, you didn't show much love. I was with you every step of the way. I, I was walking with you, and yet... Just like the Pharisee, you didn't take much notice. You did very little to display and demonstrate a love for me. Christian, I ask you this morning, how is it for you? We often say when we get to heaven, uh, we want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I'll tell you right now, I'd love to hear right now, he hath loved me much. He loves me much. And I'm sorry that sometimes that I don't match up to that, but my heart is with this woman. I want to love God much every day. How is it for you, Christian? Father, we thank you so very much for this word, this story, this amazing illustration from the life of Christ. Lord, I pray that now in this invitation we'd look back to this week. We'd ask ourselves truly where we fall what would Christ, God, what would you say about us? What would be your description of our level of love or lack thereof? Are we more along the lines of the church in Revelation where our, we've left our first love, our love for you? Or Father, could we be named with this woman? <laughs> oh yes, a sinner like we are, but one who loves you much. Has found faith and is enjoying the peace that only you can bring. Lord, I pray this morning would be a time of examining our own hearts. If our love has waned, if the actions of our life have uh, revealed that our love is not great, Lord, I, I pray we'd get back to loving you with all of our heart. As you have commanded as being the most important command, I, I pray that would be us today. Lord, forgive us for where we have failed you in our love for you. Forgive us where we have only loved in tongue or in word, not in deed and in truth. And help us from this day forward to be people who love you much. And it's obvious in our actions. Lord, thank you for your great love. Thank you for being love yourself. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm asking you to join me in standing all across the auditorium. The piano begins to play. I'd encourage